Last week we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus and this week we're primarily going to focus on his resurrection since that's the focus of Easter Sunday. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, excuse me, 1 through 4, if you will look there with me, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. It's not going to be our major text today, but it's going to be where we start. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now here's the gospel in verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, or of most importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul tells us that the gospel is basically three items. The gospel means good news. And there's good news related about three things, about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And we talked about the death last week, and we're going to talk about the resurrection for the biggest part of our message today. But I don't want to start by talking about that ignored part of the gospel that we don't talk a whole lot about, and that's the burial of Jesus, because it has a place in the gospel record as well. If you would, look at Luke chapter 23. That's going to be our primary text this morning, Luke chapter 23, and when you get there, we'll begin reading in verse 50. Luke 23, beginning at verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and a just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever laid before. That day was the preparation. In other words, the Passover was getting ready to happen, and so it was going to be a high holy day. That's what they mean by preparation. And the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after. And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath day, according to the commandment. Well, what does the burial of Jesus teach us? And first and foremost to me, the burial of Jesus teaches the sovereignty of God. If we look at the crucifixion and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, it kind of looks like it was all by chance. Uh, Jesus made the Pharisees mad. He made the council, the Sanhedrin, mad. They got up, sat with him, so they killed him. And then this guy named Joseph, uh, he happens to have a tomb, and he lets Jesus be buried there. And it all just seems to be happenstance or circumstance. But you remember what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians? It says in the beginning of the gospel, in the beginning of verse 3, and the end of verse 3, 
the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, is bracketed by the phrase, according to Scripture. All of this that happened to Jesus was according to God's Word. The entirety of the gospel, Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming back again, it's all been put in Scripture. It is all based on God's Word. And we won't read it for time's sake, but when you look at Isaiah 53, verses 8 and 9, Isaiah prophesies that Jesus will be crucified with crooks, which we found out last week that happened. And then Isaiah also prophesies that Jesus is going to be buried in a rich man's tomb, which we find out today is, is Joseph. It happens in our reading today. So when we look at Isaiah, Isaiah was written about 800 years before the life of Christ. Everything that happened with Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, happened according to the master plan of God. But not only that, the burial of Jesus shows us that even though it was the sovereign will of God, that human decisions played a part in fulfilling God's plan. Let's look at Joseph of Arimathea for just a little bit. Arimathea was a village of well-to-do people of Jerusalem. Arimathea would be the bell made of uh, Palestine, if we could use that phrase, kind of putting it into today's language. Uh, Joseph was a wealthy man. He was a member of the ruling council of the Jews called the Sanhedrin. And you didn't get to be part of that group unless you had money, unless you were wealthy. We found out in our reading that Joseph did not agree with the Sanhedrin and their decision to put Jesus on trial and to crucify him. As a matter of fact, John tells us Joseph was a believer. Uh, he didn't make that known publicly really until now when he goes to Pilate and asks Pilate for Jesus' body. Now Joseph, for reasons unknown to us, decided to be have his family buried in Jerusalem, right outside of Jerusalem there, instead of in Arimathea. We don't know why. We don't know what caused Joseph to do that, but for whatever reason that he had, he decided that his burial plot, he would have a, a grave dug. And I want to read a lot this week about uh, Jewish first century burial practices, and it's kind of fascinating in a way. Basically, what would happen is they would take a cave that was already there and somebody would cut out of the cave a big room. And it was very similar to our mausoleums today. In the room, they would cut four or five square graves that they would lay the body in. Uh, they did not embalm in first century uh, Palestine. Egypt was the only country back in those days that, that embalmed. Matter of fact, even today, a lot of awful lot of countries don't involve. But anyway, what they would do, they would wrap the body in, in wrap, and they would put spices in, uh, into the body to keep it from stinking, right? And then they would lay it in the grave, and it would decay. Every so often, they would come into the grave and put more uh, spices into the, into the body as it decayed. How would you like that job? Now, you think you've got a rough job? What do you do for a living? I put spices in dead bodies. But anyway, 
the, the body would eventually decay and deteriorate and, and get down to nothing but bone. And when that happened, someone would come in, they would collect the bones, and they would put them in a box called an ossuary. And they would, put, they would write the name or they would put the name of the person on that box and it would, the box would be placed in, against the wall in that uh, mausoleum, in that tomb, in that grave, so that another family member, other family members could be buried. That's the way that they buried. So when it says, when scripture here says it was hewn out of a rock, we don't know why Joseph decided all of a sudden to let this be his family's mausoleum, but he paid somebody to do that. It would take about 50 days for somebody to cut uh, a tomb and, and make the different graves inside uh, these, these mausoleums, it would be our word. So what we see is that even with though Joseph made that decision, God prophesied way back in Isaiah that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And for whatever reason, Joseph decides to have his family burial place right there in Jerusalem. And for whatever reason on the cross, Joseph decides now it's time. It's time for me to let these folks know I stand on Jesus' side. So he goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. Isn't that pretty cool? The burial of Jesus is according to God's sovereign plan. But God uses humans to fulfill his will. That's seen in the life of Joseph. Remember when Joseph's brothers wanted to, first they were going to kill him, then they put him in a pit, and they decided to sell him to slave traders? Well, God intended to bring his people out of Egypt. That had been prophesied in the, by the prophets, or had been prophesied earlier, rather, that they would be coming out of Egypt. Well, they had to get to Egypt to come out of Egypt. God uses human decisions, and he takes those human decisions, and he fulfills his will. That's the way God operates. He says in Romans 8, 28, that God uh, takes all things and turns them out for good for those that love the Lord. So God is working with these guys' decisions to see his will fulfilled. So the burial teaches, about God, teaches us about God's sovereignty. The burial also teaches us about human interaction within God's sovereignty. Like someone will say today, I believe, I believe that God calls us. Scripture, Jesus says that you can't come to the Father or you can't come to Him unless the Father first draws us. But I also believe we make that decision to answer uh, what the call that's made by God. So they work together. Man's free will and God's will work together so that God's plan is carried out. But the burial also teaches us about the reality of Jesus' death. Make note about it. The fact that Jesus was buried and laid in the tomb from Friday evening until Sunday morning proves that Jesus did not just faint. Jesus did not just swoon. Jesus did not just pass out. Jesus was dead. Matter of fact, he was almost dead when he was put on the cross. He had suffered beatings. He had suffered scourgings. He was so weak that he couldn't even carry the cross beam to his crucifixion site. And so he died. Before we can get to the resurrection of Jesus, we've got to have the burial of Jesus. 
That's why the burial is so important to the gospel story. Because without the burial of Jesus, there would be a question, well, did he really die? You said Jesus died, but did he really? The fact that he laid there for parts of three days, as sick and, or, or as beaten and as weak as he already was, and then at the very end of the crucifixion, the soldiers took a spear and rammed it into his side, and it pierced the heart and the water sac that surrounds the heart. Jesus was dead. And that's what the resurrection teaches us. And that's important because if we are saved by the blood of Jesus, if we are saved by, we put our faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross, when Jesus said it is finished, he meant that his finished work of salvation, if that is actually true, then we need to know that Jesus died. If Jesus really didn't die, then he really wasn't resurrected. He just got well. So the resurrection teaches us the reality of Jesus' death. The resurrection also teaches us the blessedness of God's Sabbath rest. When you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and you look at the creation story, excuse me, you see that God finished his creative work in six days, right? And what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. But when you get to the new creation, and that's Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ finished his redemptive work on the sixth day, on Friday. When Jesus says it is finished, he's talking about his redemptive work. That's finished on Friday. Jesus then rested on the seventh day. He was in the tomb. And then on the first day of the week, Jesus arose. Jesus becomes the Christian's Sabbath rest. And while we're not commanded to keep the Sabbath day like they were in the first century, I really do believe in Jesus Christ on that Lord's Day, we are still to remember that Sabbath rest and make it a time of rest and worship. Uh, we don't worship on the Sabbath day anymore. We worship on the Lord's Day. Jesus Christ was resurrected on the Lord's Day. When you get to Acts chapter 20, it says in verse 7 that their custom was to come together on the first day of the week. I still believe in the concept of the Sabbath. I still believe that happens. It, it, I, I choose to worship, uh, to celebrate that on Sunday. And I would encourage, a lot of folks work on Sunday. I would encourage you somewhere along the line to find you a day to have your Sabbath rest. To have your rest, where you rest and think about Jesus and and worship God, pray, study, meditate, think, spend time with your family, whatever it is. Several places in scripture, that, that's a different sermon. Bible plainly teaches six days of work and one day of rest. But the, the, the burial of Jesus talks about that Sabbath day rest. Jesus metaphorically rested on the seventh day. So I thought that was pretty cool. Those are some things that the burial of Jesus Christ teaches us. It's an important part of the, the gospel story, and we don't need to forget it. But today's all about the fact he's alive, right? So let's keep reading in Luke chapter 24. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. 
Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. As it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, mother of, or Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself what had happened. When we look at the idea of the resurrection, the idea of an empty tomb, it confronts our natural human skepticism. We humans tend to be skeptics. Most of us. Now, there's some people that believe anything. But it's a hard pill to swallow. What if I told you that when I got here to the church house this morning, one of these tombs over here, it was one of these graves, it was, the, the grave was dug up and the casket was open and the body was gone. What if I said, <coughs> Joe... Johnson, that's his gravestone, that's what it said on the gravestone. What if I said, Joe Johnson is alive? Would you be skeptical of that? Probably. We would think, well, somebody messed with the grave, somebody did something. Believing in the resurrection is a hard pill to swallow. But let me tell you what, the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. If the resurrection didn't happen, the rest of it didn't happen. On the other hand, if the resurrection did happen, guess what? All the rest of it's true, too. The biggest, hardest thing to believe is the resurrection. We can believe he was crucified. Matter of fact, there's historical references to Jesus of Nazareth being crucified. We can believe that. We can believe he was buried. But the idea that he was resurrected, that's where living the Christian life comes by faith and that he was resurrected. Now, there's a whole other sermon is evidences of the resurrection and there are several. The biggest being the eyewitnesses. This morning for our lesson, we're just going to stay focused on these few verses here and let's look at what we can learn from these first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. In verses 4 and 5, we find that the angels were the first preachers of the good news. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 24, they said, why do you seek the living among the dead? Verse 6, he's not here, but he's risen. He's not in this grave. They, they came into that, these women came into the mausoleum fully expecting to see Jesus' body laying there. There's nothing there except the grave clothes. And these angels get to preach preach the message, he's risen. He's not here. I love that phrase, why do you seek the living among the dead? What are you looking for? He's not here. He's risen. He's not in this grave anymore. 
He's alive. So they were the first preachers. The women were the first eyewitnesses and evangelists. Now I want to park here just for a second. A lot of people think that the Bible is very anti-woman. But the Gospels, but the Bible, especially the Gospels, hold women in very high regard. You know, you would think that Jesus would appear first to the apostles, wouldn't you? After all, they were his closest uh, students. They had invested their lives, and he had invested his lives with theirs. I find it very interesting that these women were the first to find out about the resurrected Lord. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. The rest of the apostles, except for John, we know John stayed because of the conversation that he had with uh, Jesus and, and Mary at the cross. His apostles left him. These women, have you ever watched what they did through the gospel record? They followed Jesus. They supported Jesus. They ministered to Jesus. They stayed close to Jesus. They stayed close to the cross we read the resurrection story. They were watching. They were paying attention. And what we read in these verses, when Joseph took the body, these women watched where Joseph took it. Then they prepared the spices. They rested on the seventh day. And then they went to the tomb, preparing and being ready for to, to, uh, put, to anoint the body of Jesus with those spices. It's kind of funny to me. This is a woman thing here. You read other records, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus anointed the body of Jesus with spices. I'm pretty well convinced these women said, you know, these men did that, but we better go do it, right? Because that's the that's way women folk think sometimes. But these women are so faithful to Jesus. And Jesus rewards them in being the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. And we find in Mark's account, either Matthew or Mark's account, that Mary Magdalene is actually the first person to see Jesus. Remember, she thought it was the gardener, and then it says that Jesus uh, opened her eyes. Let's look, I think it's, let's look, I want to read that to you. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't remember that, so let's, I think it's Matthew. Watch it be Mark. Let's see, Matthew, Matthew, It is not in Matthew. Well, just a second. Yeah, I should have wrote that down. I thought in my head, I better write where that is. And this time I did. It is in. Uh, let's try Mark. Because we know it's not in Luke. There it is, in Mark. Mark chapter 16. And it still doesn't tell the story that I want to tell. I'll find that for you next week. But it, it is there in the gospel accounts. Uh, Mary Magdalene is the first person actually to see Jesus. But anyway. Uh -huh. John 20. Okay. We didn't get that far, did we? I didn't look far enough. 
Look at John 20. That's it, yep. Look at John 11 beginning, or John 20 verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the, that's Mary Magdalene too. Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She has said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. In other words, at that, when Jesus said Mary, Mary recognized Jesus for who Jesus was. Isn't that pretty cool? Now we think the Bible is very anti-woman. But the, what Jesus did with these women, the group of women being witnesses to the empty tomb, and they, then Mary Magdalene being the first to see Jesus, it shows to me that God places a very high priority on women. And we should too. Uh, and uh, like Forrest Gump says, that's all I'm going to say about that. And I'm going to go on to the next point. But we need to understand the Bible is not anti-woman. And don't let anybody tell you that the Bible and Christianity and all those folks are anti-women. Because that's not right. So we've got the first preachers, the first eyewitnesses. Going back to our text in Luke. Down in verse 11. Of Luke chapter 24. We find out that the 11 were the first skeptics. Notice when these women come into the. Uh, to find the apostles. They've seen the empty tomb. They go find the 11. And look what's said in verse uh, 11. And their words seemed to them like idle tales. And they did not believe them. You know the apostles had been through a lot. In these past couple of months. They've seen the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem where the common people lay down the palm branches and shout Hosanna to God in the highest. And they basically proclaim Jesus as their king. These apostles are on cloud nine thinking, yeah, buddy, now it's time Jesus is going to free Israel from Rome. He's going to conquer the Romans and, and Israel's going to be great again. And then they see Jesus arrested. And then they see Jesus crucified. And I could imagine if you had been in their place, I wonder if Peter, Andrew, James, and John said, reckon we could get our fishing business started again? I wonder if Matthew wondered if he could go back to the tax booth and find a place in the government for him to work. He had a pretty good job. He had a government job. And so he wondered if he could go back to that. wonder if Simon the Zealot started looking for his next insurrection. Uh, to be a part of. You can't hardly blame these apostles for being a little bit skeptical. But the skeptical, the skepticism of the apostles, doesn't that just mirror our normal human skepticism? They were just, I think they were afraid to believe. I think they were afraid to think. Have you ever heard something that's just too good to be true? 
And that you just, I just don't want to believe that Jesus is alive. But notice then in verse 12, while the eleven were the first skeptics, Peter was the first to act on what he had heard. In verse 12, he jumps up, he arose, and he ran to the tomb. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. John tells us that John went with him as well. John actually outran Peter to the tomb. Uh, tradition tells us John was the youngest apostle, and Peter was the oldest apostle. Don't know whether that's totally true, but pretty strong secular sources tell us that fact. So, some of you older folks, let's say that the tomb was uh, down there at 96. And here we are in this room, and the uh, women come in, and they say, we've been to the tomb, the tomb is empty. And the 11 are saying, man, you're though that, that, just a bunch of women talking, idle tale, y'all are crazy. But Peter thinks, I wonder. And so I'm going to be Peter. And so I head to the door. And Clayton, he decides he's going to be John. And he jumps up. We both start running. Who do you think's going to get to the 96 first? If I don't have a heart attack, I promise you, Clayton will. So John outran Peter. But Peter got there. We're staying in Luke's account. And to get the, it's pretty incredible. If you want to get a full picture of the, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the trial, the arrest of Jesus, read all four Gospels. Because all four of them talk tell it from a different perspective, uh, and it's, it's hard to remember which narrative has which part, uh, but it's, it's all there. We're going to stick to Luke's narrative, and that is that Peter became the first to act on what he had heard. He heard it, and he says, I want to go believe, because you know what? The last time Peter had seen Jesus was where? At a courtyard, over a fire, right after he had denied Jesus, remember? Jesus had made the prediction that he was going to die and that the rest of the apostles would desert him. And Peter says, not me. Now all the rest of them may. I won't. I'll fight with you to the death. Well, Peter doesn't do that. He ends up denying the Lord. Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Well, as the trial of Jesus was going on across the courtyard, Peter's out by the fire barrel warming his hands. And three times different people say, Aren't, don't you know Jesus? Aren't you with him? And Peter said, not me, I don't know him. And one time it said it even, he even cussed and swore that he didn't know who Jesus was. And right after he denied Jesus, the third time, the rooster crowed. And it said that Peter, I don't know how far away Jesus was, but he was close enough to look Jesus in the eyes. And it says Peter went out and he wept bitterly. That's the last time Jesus has ever has seen Jesus. And he's feeling a lot of guilt. And being a prison chaplain, I have seen a lot of guilt. And, and being a pastor for years, I've seen a lot of guilt too. When people die, a lot of times people are guilty. And there, there's what I call dirty guilt and what I call clean guilt. And what I mean by clean guilt is if, if you've done everything you can for somebody and you've done the best you could by them and when they pass, you feel, you feel bad and you miss them 
And not really guilt, but grief is what I mean to say. Dirty grief and clean grief. Clean grief is where you've done everything you can. You told them you loved them. They, you know they loved you. And you're sad you missed them. Dirty grief is what Peter was feeling. The last thing, last memory he had of his Savior was of him denying him. Dirty grief is like some of these inmates that have, that, that I talk to and work with, that have committed crimes against people, sometimes where people have died and, and they still, they, they carry that dirty grief with them. Or these inmates' parents pass away and they are there in the prison and they're not able there, not able to go home and take care of them. They have that dirty, Peter's got that dirty grief. So it doesn't surprise me that he's the first one to go, man, if there's a chance this is true, I've got a chance maybe to make this right. And so Peter takes off and he goes. As we look at this resurrection account, what are some of the emotions that we see? At verse 4, it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this. The women were perplexed at what they had seen. They expected to see a grave with a body in it. What they saw instead was an empty grave with grave clothes laying there. They were also frightened in verse 5 as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth. They saw these two men, they were afraid. Wouldn't you be? If the body's gone and these two angels are there, that would make a person afraid. Not only that, verses 6 through 8, they were reminded of the past. He's not here but risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. It took these angels said, don't you remember what Jesus told you? And they said, oh yeah. So that's what he was talking about. Peter was amazed in verse 12. Peter arose, ran to the tomb, stooping down he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and he departed, marveling at himself. Now I'm sure he doesn't fully understand Later that evening, Jesus is going to appear to them. He also appears to Peter by himself uh, during one of the accounts tells us. But right now, Jesus hasn't seen the resurrected Lord. All he sees is empty tomb. And he sees the folded linen cloth. And he is he's amazed. He's like, man, what is this? And he's kind of thinking about what it is that he has seen. But as we wrap this up, what does the resurrection teach us? First of all, the resurrection is not just an event. It is an invasion. The resurrection is not just a, an event. It is an invasion. When Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross and he died, and then he was raised again, Jesus Christ has invaded Satan's kingdom. He has invaded Satan's territory, saying, Satan, I've defeated the last stronghold you had for mankind. I conquered sin on the cross. I conquered death with my resurrection. See me? You wanted me to be dead at the cross. You thought you had won. Saturday was a victory dance for you. But you didn't understand that Sunday was coming. 
Jesus Christ invaded Satan. Jesus Christ invaded that kingdom. And the world has never been the same. The resurrection is going to leave us with two things as we wrap up. The re resurrection leaves us with, first of all, a decision. You and I this morning have to deal with an empty tomb. There's a tomb in Israel, right outside of Jerusalem, that at one time the body of Jesus Christ of Nazareth was laying in it, but on Sunday it was empty. And unless Joseph of Arimathea buried the rest of his family there, that mausoleum is still empty. What are you going to do with an empty tomb? You've got one or two choices. You could either say, somebody stole the body, or you could say, he's alive. I want to ask you a question. If you say, somebody stole the body, what did they do with it? Because right after Jesus' ascension back into heaven, during the first century, Christianity exploded all over the known world at that time based on eyewitness testimony that Jesus Christ lived. That was, their, that was their creed. That was their message. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. It exploded all over the world. If Jesus really is alive, that leaves you with another decision. Who's going to be Lord of your life? Jesus or you? There aren't any other alternatives. Jesus is either going to be Lord of our lives or we're going to be Lord of our lives. And you know, even as Christians, even when we sin, we're rebelling, we're saying we're going to be Lord of our lives. Not only are you left with the decision, the empty tomb also is going to leave us with a responsibility. You alone are responsible for your decision. I'm responsible for my decision. I've got two questions for you this morning. It's really one, but it's told two different ways. Number one, is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life this morning? And if he's not, are you willing to make him Lord of your life? Or are you going to face eternity being your own Lord, being defiant, being defiant, and standing before the Lord and just or before God with just you and him? That's a very serious decision. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, it's not complicated. Admit you're a sinner. God knows it already. You're not going to surprise him. When you say you're a sinner, God's not going to say, oh, I didn't know that. He knows. All you're doing is agreeing with him that you're a sinner. He knows you are already. And you understand that you can't be good enough to save yourself. No matter how good you are, you can't be good enough. I can't be good enough. Nobody in this room can be good enough to save themselves. I have good news for you this morning. Jesus Christ died to save you. He knew we couldn't save ourselves. So he came 
to earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross. He took my death, and he gave us, he gave me his righteousness. And he wants to do the same thing for you. Just cry out to God. Pray to God, God, I can't save myself. Jesus, save me. Make Jesus your Savior. Make Jesus the Lord of your life. And start living that way. Start living for Jesus. Start growing. And maybe you've made that decision and you've wandered away. You've taken your place back on the throne of your life and you've kicked Jesus off. Why not put him back on this morning? Whatever it is you need to do. Do you need to start attending church regularly? You need to be baptized. You need to join the church. You need to teach a Sunday school class. We're trying to, we want to start a praise team. If you play an instrument, we would love to have you be part of that. What is it God's calling you to do next? It's up to you. Let's bow. Our Father in heaven, thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. We thank you, thank you especially, Father, for the fact that Jesus is alive. The fact that Jesus is alive gives me the hope and the assurance that because I've trusted in Jesus' finished work on the cross, that just like Jesus is alive forever, I'll be alive forever with him. Father, I pray that at, during this time of invitation that you would examine our hearts. I pray that you would pull back the layers of our heart and reveal to us where we stand before you. I pray your Holy Spirit would convict us. I pray your Holy Spirit would work with us and give us the courage during this invitation time to get right back into the center of your will. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.